I just feel like I'm home every time I come back. Cindy and I are always just overjoyed to be able to be here at this wonderful church. We're thankful for Miles Road Baptist Church and what it's done through the years and what it's still doing. Well, Jim has been a friend of mine for a long time, and I love you, Jim. I appreciate you so much, and we look forward to doing kingdom work together now in the future. I wonder if uh, Jim wants me to give the milk of the word <laughs> instead of the meat of the word. So you'll have to be the judge on what you get tonight. Timothy, O oh man of God, that's the assignment that I was given for this series. How will, you be rem how will you be remembered when you're gone? I'd like to just pose that question just for a moment. How will you be remembered when you're gone? You know, on every person's tombstone, there are two dates. The year of birth and also the year of death. But between those two dates, there's a dash, isn't it? which represents the years the person lived. Linda Ellis wrote a beautiful poem called The Dash, and you can find it for yourself on her website, thedashpoem.com. I'd like to read it for you. I read of a man who stood to speak at a funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke of the following date with tears, but said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time they spent alive on earth, and now only those who love them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we owe, own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we lived and loved and how we spent our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that still can be rearranged. To be less quick to anger and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives like we've never, ever loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last for a little while. So when your eulogy is being read, with your life's action to rehash, would you be proud of the things they said about you and how you lived your dash? Let me ask you, how will you spin your dash? How will you be remembered? What will be said about you and me when we're gone? Well, it depends on how we spend our dash. Tonight I want us to talk about Timothy's dash. How he spent his dash. And I believe as we study Timothy's life, I think we can answer that question by looking at some of the main passages in the New Testament that deal 
with Timothy's life, with Timothy's dash. From these passages, I believe we learn three things. Number one, Timothy was a man of faith. Number two, Timothy was a man of the word. And number three, Timothy was a man of God. How did he spend his dash? Well, first of all, he was a man of faith. If you have your Bibles, you might want to follow along. I'm going to be in, in several different books, especially First and Second Timothy and then Philippians. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, we read these words. 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, where Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. There are three things about Timothy that caused Paul to always remember him and also motivated him to pray for young Timothy. I want us to look at these, these three things. Number one, his sincere faith. Timothy was a man of sincere faith. In fact, he says it, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy's faith was sincere, it was genuine, it was real. There was nothing hypocritical in his faith, there was nothing false, it was real. And his faith was rooted and grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when was Timothy saved? Well, we know that he was saved under Paul's preaching ministry on his first missionary journey in the city of Lystra in Asia Minor, Timothy's hometown. Timothy was probably just 15 or 16 or 17 years old when he was saved. If you remember, it was in Lystra. On Paul's first missionary journey, that Paul was severely attacked and stoned and left for dead. We know that Timothy's mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, were Jewish believers, but his father was a Greek. His father did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not saved. Some believe that possibly Eunice and Lois, they were saved on the day of Pentecost under the preaching ministry of Peter when they were in Jerusalem for the feast. Now, we cannot know this for sure, and we have no biblical evidence that this ever happened, but it's a possibility because Jews from all over the world came to, came to Jerusalem for that feast, the Feast of Pentecost. When Paul returned to Lystra about a year later, on his second missionary journey, he reconnected with young Timothy, and he recognized his strong faith and commitment to the Lord. He saw his spiritual gifts being developed, and he invited Timothy to join him for the rest of the journey. Timothy agreed to go, 
and a strong partnership was established between Paul and Timothy. Both in 1 and 2 Timothy, Paul refers to Timothy as his child in the faith, referring to the fact that Paul led him to Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, this I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. 2 Timothy 1, 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. 2 Timothy 2, 1, you then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Second thing that reminded Paul of Timothy and motivated him to pray for him was his spiritual gifts. Not only his sincere faith, but his spiritual gifts. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, we read, For this reason I remind you to fan and deflame the gift of God which is in you. Now, we aren't told exactly what this spiritual gift was. But knowing a little bit about Timothy, and as your pastor mentioned, he was pastor of the church of Ephesus. So as we try to understand a little bit about this man's life and what we know in the word of God, I'm sure he had two gifts. I'm sure he had the gift of evangelism because he went with Paul on these missionary journeys to evangelize. And number two, I believe that he had the gift, of course, of pastor teacher. So he had these two gifts. Of course, the gift of evangelism is the ability to proclaim the gospel in such a way that it draws lost people to the Savior. I don't have this gift. I believe your pastor does. I don't. But also, the gift of pastor and teacher. And this is the ability to teach and to apply the Word of God in such a way that lives are changed. Now, in my opinion, it's no question that Timothy possessed these two spiritual gifts. Now, this brings us to the question, when do Christians receive spiritual gifts? In other words, when did Timothy receive these spiritual gifts? And the answer is, at the very moment of salvation. Amen. However, spiritual gifts must be, what, discovered and developed and practiced. That's why Paul encourages Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. And what Paul is saying is simply this. Don't neglect the gift that God has given you. Don't allow it to lie dormant in your life. Develop it. Practice it. Use it. Fan it into flame. Now what was true for Timothy is true for us today. Each and every one of us as believers, I don't care who you are, I don't care how long you've been saved, each and every one of us have one or more spiritual gifts. And these gifts were given at the very moment of salvation, but they must be discovered. We need to find out what they are. They need to be developed. They need to be practiced. They need to be used in order for them to function properly. What a tragedy is it to have spiritual gifts and not know what they are. For them not to be discovered, not to be developed, not to be practiced, not to be used. Years ago, I was talking to an older church member in our church in Alkalu at the time. He was an older man at the time, and I had just finished preaching a um, series of sermons on spiritual gifts. And in that series, uh, I stressed the fact that every Christian has a spiritual gift. It doesn't matter who you are or 
what position you have in the church or how long you've been saved, we all have at least one spiritual gift. Well, he looked at me and he said, he said, Pastor, um, I must not be a Christian because I don't have a spiritual gift. And he looked so dejected. He said, I, I must not be a Christian because I don't have a spiritual gift. And I looked at him and I said, Mr. Ben, you do have a spiritual gift. And that gift is very important. Since I've been your pastor, you have been so encouraging to me. Of all the people in the church, you have been one who has encouraged me through thick and thin. You have the gift of encouragement. And my friend, I believe with all my heart one of the greatest gifts in any church is the gift of exhortation, the gift of encouragement, the gift of encouragement. Well, there's a third thing that reminded uh, Paul of Timothy and motivated him to pray for him, not only his faith, not only his spiritual gifts, but he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter... Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, it says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, I believe verse 7 is speaking of the Holy Spirit. Timothy was indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And, of course, this is true of every believer. And, again, not only do we receive spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit moment of salvation but also at the moment of salvation we're all permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God Amen. in other words at salvation we didn't receive the spirit in installments we didn't receive some of the spirit here and some of the spirit there some of the spirit no we received the full manifestation of the Spirit of God permanently we were indwelt by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation now, Paul wanted Timothy to know two truths about the Spirit. One is negative and the other is positive. First of all, he wanted him to know that the Spirit does not bring fear. The Spirit does not bring fear. Now, see, Timothy was timid. <laughs> Maybe that's how he got his name. I don't know. But <laughs> Timothy was timid. He struggled with fear. It was probably a, personnel, a personality weakness that he was going through. He, he was a, a young pastor, and he was ministering to people who were twice his age, old enough to be his parents or his grandparents. And, you know, that can be quite intimidating. It really can be. I know when I was at Alkaloo, I experienced that. There was an old guy, Jim knows him well, there was an old guy in the church, and he tried his best to intimidate me as best he could. And he succeeded quite often, I promise you that. Well, Timothy was easily fearful, easily, easily intimidated. And, and that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.12, Let no one despise you for your youth, Timothy. But set the believers as an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Going back to that intimidating experience that I had there in my first pastorate, you know, as a young preacher, 
you know, this guy, he just did his best to intimidate me and did his best to put me down and made me feel very, very low for a good long time. I got on the phone with my pastor at the time, Dick Alderman, and I called him up and I said, listen, I don't know what's happening, you know, but, but this guy's just driving me crazy. He really is. And, and, um, and he said, well, Norman, he had me to turn to this very same passage. And he said, what you need to do is what Paul was exhorting Timothy to do. Don't fight him. He says, if you fight him, you'll lose the battle. I promise you that. What you need to do is love him. What you do is be an example to him in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And you know, it works. It really does. It works. It really does. Be honest. You know, I think from time to time, we're all assaulted by fear. Different kinds of fear. Fear of people, fear of the present, fear of the future, fear of what might happen, fear of some tragedy that might come into your life. You know, fear, worry, anxiety doesn't come from God. It doesn't. How many times in the Bible does it say, do not fear? You know, I think about Jesus. Jesus said over and over again, fear not, fear not, fear not. Let not your heart be troubled. Do not be anxious for your life. And then Paul writes to the Philippians, be anxious for nothing. Don't say, God did not give us a spirit of fear. Fear comes from another source, and we know who that is. That's the enemy. That's the evil one. And Paul is telling young Timothy, you know, God has not given us the spirit, the spirit that he has given us does not produce fear. It doesn't. Well, what does it produce? Well, he tells us. Number one, power. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live for God. In fact, we can't live the Christian life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. I love what God says in Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, not by power. That is human power but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Also, the spirit produces love. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to love God and to love one another. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the Holy Spirit brings power, it brings love, and then Self-control. And of course, self-control means sound judgment, level-headedness, wisdom. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives us the wisdom to know the right things and to do the right things. Timothy was a man of faith. Secondly, Timothy was a man of the word. A man of the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 14 and following. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and following. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Young Timothy was a man of the book. He was a man of the word of God. Now, from Timothy's life, we learn several things about what we're to do with the Bible. What we're to do with the Bible. And the first thing is this. We are to read and study the scriptures. In fact, that's exactly what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. That means Timothy was a student of the Word of God. He was. Now, all Timothy had was the Old Testament scriptures. And I was reading a little bit in preparation for this, and some commentators believe that maybe he had um, Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, and he probably had some of the letters of, of Paul that, that he wrote. But mainly, he just had the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul encourages him to study the scriptures. In fact, he says, keep it up, keep it up. You know, the Bible is a different book from all of the other books in this world. So you can't read the Bible like you read a magazine, or you can't read a Bible like you read some sort of manual to to fix something. You, You can't read the Bible like you read a novel. No, the Bible is a different book. It needs to be read prayerfully, and it needs to be read repeatedly. Now, reading and studying the Scriptures did two things for Timothy. And it will do the same thing for us. Did two things for Timothy, and will do two things for us. Number one, the Bible will change the way you think. This book will change the way you think. And so you can't read the Bible without being changed. Just think about it just for a moment. It will change the way you think about God. You read the Bible, you learn about God. And it will change your thinking about who God is, his greatness, his power, his majesty, all of his attributes. It will change the way you think about God. He's not, a, he's not the big man upstairs. No, I hate to hear that. No, he's not. He's a holy, righteous God. You know, he's not some grandfather up there, you know, just pouring out good gifts for people. No, he's a holy and a righteous God. It will change the way you think about yourself. You read this book and you'll see the truth about yourself. You'll see that you're a sinner. You'll see that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It will change the way you feel or you think about yourself. And it will change the way you think about others. And you read this book and it will change the way you think about your wife. Because the Bible says as husbands we are to love our wives as Christ loves us. It will change the way you think about your husband because this book will tell you that you're to lovingly follow your husband as the leader in your home. It will change the way you think about your children because the most important thing in your life will be to bring them up in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord and to lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Bible will change the way you think. 
But also, my friend, this book will change the way you behave, the way you conduct your life. It will change what you do, how you act. It will make you a man or a woman of God. A group of British sailors on the ship, HMS Bounty, mutinied in the early part of the 19th century. They seized the ship, and then they fled from British authorities to a remote island in the South Pacific, and they hid there for years and years and years. After some time, this band of cutthroat sailors began to turn on each other. In fact, they, they began to kill one another off. However, something miraculous happened that changed everything. One of the mutineers, Alexander Smith, he found the Bible his mother had placed in his trunk. And he began to read it. And read it. And read it. And read it. And read it. He began to study it. He began to meditate upon it. He began to memorize portions of it. And soon he trusted Christ as his Savior. And his life was drastically changed, drastically changed. And he began to teach the Bible to the others on the island. And eventually, almost all on the island were saved by the power of the Word of God. My friend, there's not another book in all the world that can do that. There's not another book in all the world that can lead a sinner, a hell-deserving sinner to salvation and change and transform his or her life. Only the Word of God can do that. But my friend, I promise you one thing. It will not happen if you have that Bible tucked away on the shelf or on a coffee table or on the back seat of your car. <laughs> A lot of times when I'm parking in a parking lot, you know, on Sunday or whenever it is, I you can't help but look in the back seat of people's cars and, and you see this Bible just tossed over on the floor, on the on the seat, half open, and you realize that they probably won't pick it up again until the next Sunday. It'll be right there and they'll take it to church and then they'll toss it back on the back seat. No. The word of God will not change you unless you read it and study it. And that's exactly what Paul is telling Timothy, and that's what God is telling us. But not only that, we're to believe the Scriptures. We're to act upon the Scriptures. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have fir firmly believed. Well, see, Timothy didn't just read and study the Scriptures, he believed the Scriptures. Now, what helped Timothy come to believe the Holy Scriptures? You know, sometimes we need help, don't we? we need, what helped Timothy come to know the Holy Scriptures? Well, he was taught the Scriptures in his home. He was taught the Word of God in his home. Again, 2 Timothy 3, 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And of course, for Timothy, it was his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. They were the channels. They were the conduit by which he was taught the word of God. Listen to me. This is important. 
the primary place for the Word of God to be taught is in the home. That's the primary place. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God says, Teach the Scriptures to your children when they rise up in the morning, when they sit down at mealtime, when they lie down at night before they go to bed. Use these teachable moments to teach your children the Word of God. In other words, don't miss these opportunities to teach the Word of God. And see, it doesn't have to be with a big family Bible and sit down in some formal way. Use every opportunity you have to teach your children the Word of God. I remember a story. We were headed to the beach, and it was night. We were living in Alkaloo, and we were going to Garden City, and, and as we were going, it was a starlit night, and our, our oldest son was just, just maybe one or two, and he was looking up at the stars, and he said, Daddy, Mommy, how can I get up there where God lives in heaven? And, of course, I had to talk to him on a very childlike basis, but I had a wonderful opportunity to explain you know, how we how we. We'll get to heaven one day. He said, will we climb up a ladder? I said, no, it won't happen like that. But let me tell you how it's going to happen. Don't miss those opportunities. He was also taught the scriptures at an early age. 2 Timothy 3.15. And how from childhood, infancy, or at least a toddler, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. How many parents do we have here with small children? Or teenagers. Yeah, we have some. Parents, please don't miss this. The time to start teaching your children the Word is when they are very, very young. Even when they don't understand what you were saying. I remember um, hearing Pastor Adrian Rogers say that when his first child was born, he went into the nursery where his newborn baby was sleeping. And he, he got out the Bible and he shared the gospel with him because he said he didn't want ever to be a time when that child didn't hear about Jesus Christ. Start when they're young. VBS, Sunday school, Awana are very important programs, but they can never take the place of the sound teaching of the Word of God in the home. And dads, that is your responsibility, to teach your children the Word of God and to lead them to Jesus Christ. And if you fail here, then you fail as a father, as a leader in your home. Don't abdicate your God-given calling. Don't abdicate your God-given calling calling and thirdly i want us to see that not only was timothy a man of faith not only was he a man of the book not only was he a man of the word of god but i want us to see that he was that he was a man of god paul's writing under the inspiration of the holy spirit he says in first timothy chapter 6 verse 11 but as for you O man of god you know, that was, that was Timothy. He was a man of God. How would you like that to be said about you? 
His godly character is evidenced by several things. Number one, his unselfishness. His unselfishness. Now flip over to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says about Timothy. I have no one like him. Again, how would you like that to be said about you? He was one of a kind. Paul is saying he is a one of a kind. He's exceptional. He's head over shoulders above all the rest. No one can hold a candle to Timothy when it comes to the care and the needs of others. He says in verse 21, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Well, see, Paul was searching. <laughs> he was searching for someone to go to Philippi to shepherd that church. <laughs> they needed someone desperately, but everybody turned him down, left and right. Not because they couldn't go, but because they wouldn't go. They were just too interested in their own affairs. They didn't have time for others. The only one that Paul could count on was young Timothy. Everybody else turned him down. But Timothy says, I'll go. I'll go to Philippi. I'll go there. I'll go anywhere God sends. His unselfishness. His unselfishness. And then secondly, his godly character is manifest by his faith. Love the song that Kent sang. Oh, will God find us to be faithful? He was faithful. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with the Father, he has served with me in the gospel. Well, see, Paul knew that he could count on Timothy because he had already proven himself as a faithful partner in ministry. And Paul and Timothy had been through many hardships together. And through it all, Timothy proved himself to be faithful. Well, see, Timothy, he belonged to the other first club, not the me first club. Let me ask you, what club do you belong to? Is it the me first club? I want to be served. I, I want my preferences and... And if I just don't get my way, that I'm going to just pout and be ugly about it. No, not Timothy. He belonged to the others' first club, not the me first club. And thirdly, his godly character was evidenced by his encouragement. His encouragement. Philippians chapter 2, verse 23, he says, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Paul is saying, I hope to send him to you, Philippians, but I can't let him go quite yet. I can't, I can't let him go quite yet. Don't say, Paul's in jail. He hopes to be set free soon. He wants to keep Timothy with him until he sees what happened 
to himself. What an encouragement Timothy was to Paul. Well, we know that finally Paul was released. But sometime later, he was arrested again, and he was taken to the infamous Memertine prison in Rome and placed on death's row. Terrible dungeon. And there he writes a second letter to Timothy and says, do your best to come to me before winter. Oh, have you read those words? He says, Timothy, do your best to come to me before winter and bring the parchments, bring the scrolls, bring the word of God. I, I need the word of God to nourish my soul. And he said, bring the cloak, bring the coat. It's cold in this dungeon. Timothy was the kind of man you wanted with you in times like that. He was an encourager. Oh, be an encourager. I think when I was in seminary, I heard the story of Joseph Bailey. He lost three of his children tragically. One died at 18 after heart surgery. Another died at five from leukemia. The third child died at eight from a sledding accident. He wrote a book, and his book, From the View of a Hearse, he writes about the death of one of his sons. I want to read what he wrote. He said, I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except the wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask me leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. Timothy was that kind of man. Timothy was a comforter. He was an encourager. That's how he spent his dash. He was a man of faith, a man of the word, a man of God. Well, now it's time for us to live our dash. God bless you.